Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Um, hello, if you're online. I think my mum and dad are online this morning as well, so I'll call you later. Um, we're in this teaching series called Blessed, where we're looking at the Beatitudes, these eight statements that Jesus makes at the very start of the Sermon on the Mount, which was his kingdom manifesto, his vision for what life is going to be like in full as he completes his renewal of all, all things, all creation. And these eight statements are these kind of invitations and these challenges to us about what it is to be truly human. And someone commented to me after last week that uh, they kind of re realized that all around us in contemporary culture, we see beatitudes, statements about what we think the true human life is all about, particularly in advertising and social media. Then these beatitudes, these contemporary wisdom memes, some of them, to be fair, are pretty cheesy. You might have seen them on Facebook or Instagram, but I've had a look, and some of them, to be fair, are actually really quite good. So take, for example, this one. Life is short, so smile while you still have teeth. <laughs> I mean, I, profound, right? Um, I, I could relate to this one. I'm nothing like my parents, I say, as I stuff plastic bags inside other plastic bags. <laughs> Hands up, come on. Yeah, it's like, I am never doing that. Here I am. And then finally, silence is golden. Unless you have a toddler. In that case, silence is very, very suspicious. Um, <laughs> some real wisdom out there, isn't there? But we're arguing in this teaching series that the true wisdom that we really need, if we're to truly understand who we are and who we're called to be, is found in the teachings of Jesus. Right at the very center of the Gospels is this thing, the Sermon on the Mount. Here's what Jesus has to say to us about what it is to be human. I would argue they capture beautifully and perfectly what it is to actually really be human and really know God. Jonathan T. Pennington, who I referred to last week, who's written that, this amazing commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, says this about the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes particularly. He says, Jesus provides a Christocentric, flourishing-oriented, kingdom-awaiting, eschatological wisdom exhortation. Now, that's a lot of funny words, okay? But what he's trying to get at is really important. What he's saying is, Jesus gives us this vision that is centered around the person of Jesus. It's about our flourishing, about being truly, gloriously alive. It's about the kingdom coming. It's caught up. It's only possible if you live into the kingdom of God, not, as we looked at last week, the kingdom of self. And it's eschatological, in other words, that it's only here in part now, but it's coming in the fullness of time as Jesus outworks his kingdom vision through the church. It's a vision for how to really live. And today we're looking at the second beatitude, which is this. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. As with the first beatitude that we looked at last week, there is more going on than it might first seem. And this beatitude, I would suggest, works on two levels. First, it's good news for those of us who are mourning the loss of someone or something precious and important to us. There are people in this room, I know lots of you, who are mourning the loss of someone or something. 
And Jesus would want you to hear loud and clear today, I want to comfort you in your loss. The kingdom is good news for those who mourn. We do feel it, don't we, most acutely when we're mourning the loss of a loved one, someone who was taken from us. And we have this deep human instinct that death is alien. It's not right, and it's because that is true. It was never God's intention that there would be sickness and death in the world. More of that later. And so we rightly grieve and feel loss and pain and hurt when someone is taken from us. But we rightly also mourn other losses, don't we? The loss of a relationship that was once something but is now not. The loss, perhaps, of a job and all that that meant for us. The loss of a dream. The loss to our health when we're sick or injured. The loss, perhaps, of something material that maybe didn't even have any monetary value but was precious to us. When we mourn the loss of someone or something, God we're told here, longs to comfort us. And so if you're here this morning and you are mourning, uh, you are so welcome. And we are committed in this church to journeying with each other in the nitty-gritty mess of life, and particularly for those who mourn. And we long to be comfort to you as your family, but also ultimately to help you find something of the comfort of God for you. And it might be that you just need to tune out everything else I'm about to say and allow yourself just to rest in the presence of God and to hear those words that I am with you and I am for you and I, I hate it too. It's not what I had in mind. It's not what I intended and I feel it and I'm here for you and I long to comfort you. The second level is more challenging and some of what I'm about to say will be harder to hear but I want to ask you to stick with me if you're listening, um, because as you'll see, it's good news and it leads to life. The word in the Greek here for mourn is best translated a passionate lament. A passionate lament. Jesus is saying, when you passionately lament, then I can comfort you. And lamenting is more than just our kind of feeling sad. It's deeply, it's feeling this deep sense that this is wrong. And it shouldn't, be, it shouldn't be happening and it's not okay and something needs to be done about it. It's that gut-wrenching feeling we have when we face with loss and the causes of it. And we go, no, our instinct is to say no. Jesus is speaking here about a mourning that causes us to experience deep sorrow, not just for what is lost, but for the reasons for that loss. And in that place to discover and allow to awaken in us a deep longing for God and his kingdom to come. He's talking here about the loss that we feel when something or someone is taken from us that we realize is the symptom of a bigger problem, that actually the loss we experience is symptomatic of a problem that's deeper than that, and we feel a pain and a loss and a mourning for the cause of it as well. And until we allow ourselves to go that deep, Jesus says, you cannot fully experience all the comfort of God. It's not either or. It's both and. It's mourning both for our experience of loss, those symptoms of this deeper problem that we experience that make life hard for us, and the reasons for it. 
It's mourning, yes, for the loss that we experience, but also for the sin in the world that causes it and the sin in us that makes us culpable at times too. All the other things that we rightly mourn are the loss and, and sorry, of, let me start again. All the other things that we rightly mourn the loss of are in fact the consequences of sin. And sin is a word we don't often talk about in the church these days. And typically, if I was to go out into the, the wider world and start talking about sin, immediately that pushes buttons in people and they start thinking, yes, the church goes on and on about sin. That means that God, is that, is that all the stuff that God hates about me, all the stuff that makes God mad? It's not that simple. Sin is a much more complex and important reality that we have to grapple with. The theologian Cornelius Plantinger what a name. I mean, seriously, Mr. and Mrs. Plantinger, what should we call our son? Cornelius. <laughs> Cornelius Plantinger, professor, in fact, Cornelius Plantinger, wrote an incredible book on sin, and it's called Not the Way It's Supposed to Be, which is a brilliant title. Sin is the reality that the world is not as it's supposed to be. The world is not as God intended it to be and intends it to be. And so too is this truth that you and I are not as God intended. That we are also caught up in this project of being redeemed and restored. And sin is this cosmic reality that we experience personally. It's the reality that the world we live in is broken. When nothing is fully as God intends, us included. And it means... There is pain, and there's sickness, and there's suffering, and there's conflict, and there's death. But none of those things were as God intended. They're not what God has for his creation. They're the consequence of sin, of this broken relationship with God, one another, and all creation, something that Jesus came to solve. Paul writes in Romans 6, simply that the wages of sin is death. In other words, death is the consequence, the inevitable outworking of sin and brokenness. It's alien to what God intended. And so we experience loss. And we experience with that loss pain and grief and hurt. Deep, deep pain. And life's hard. Bad things happen to good people because the world is not as it's meant to be. And Jesus here is inviting us to see this and so to mourn, as I say, not just the symptoms, but also the cause. And to recognize not only are we the victims of that, but at times, if we're honest, we can perpetrate it too. Because deep through my heart and deep through your heart is this rift. We're not perfect. Do you ever upset people? Do you ever let people down? Do you ever do things you shouldn't do? <laughs> yeah, because we are too broken and imperfect. And what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10 is his attempt to articulate something of what happens in us when we feel this deep mourning and this recognition that we are caught up and we are part of the problem that is causing all of this loss in the first place. He says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation 
and leaves no regrets. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation. That's theological language again. But what he's trying to say here is that when we mourn the sin in the world and in our hearts, we experience a form of godly sorrow, this deep sadness, this deep ownership, and a a resistance to that reality that moves us to a place of repentance, of, of saying sorry and wanting to be different, of owning it and of feeling the cost and the consequences of it and not being okay with it and resolving to be different and to take action until things are different. Which brings us back to the issue of pride we looked at last week. I told you it was going to be hard today. How are you doing? Okay. Can you hear the hope in all of this? I hope you can. This brings us back to the issue of pride and the need to humble ourselves before God. It's not enough just to say, I am poor in spirit, to confess that I'm poor in spirit, God, that I need you. I have to come to the place of repentance. I have to say, actually, not only do I need you, but actually I am sorry because I too have contributed to the state of affairs and also to own the fact that I hate it. And the closer you get to God, the more you will hate the sin and brokenness and pain and hurt and loss in the world. And the more that you spend time with God, the more that you sit in humility and go, God, unless you do something in me and through me, things won't change. And the more you seek God in that, the more you will look out on the world and you will resist it. But you'll have compassion for it. Because something in you is bigger than that which is around us that says, this is not how it's meant to be. But I know a God who's taken decisive action to make sure that it does indeed change. It's confession and repentance. We can confess our need for God. That's poverty of spirit. But we have to get to that place where we feel sorrow, deep sorrow for the state of things. We see this idea of culpability, I think, in the life of David who wrote after his affair with Bathsheba these words in Psalm 51, have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins, wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin. It's a great prayer to have up your sleeve when you too find yourself needing to say sorry to God. And in the story of Nehemiah, we see someone moved by godly sorrow to take action. He's in exile in the king, the court of the king, King Artaxerxes, and he's a long way from home, which was Jerusalem for him, but he hears that the walls of Jerusalem are in ruin. And to him, that is symbolic of the state of the people of God, that they too were not as they were meant to be. And we read this. This is his response when he hears this news. When I heard this, I sat down and wept. In fact, for days I mourned and fasted and prayed to the God of heaven. This is a clue. This is a picture of, I think, what happens when we allow ourselves to go to that place of mourning the state of things, feeling godly sorrow. We start, we weep. We're moved to tears because we deep in us know It's not meant to be like this. This is not okay. And of course, we see this all in the life of Jesus, don't we? 
Luke, verse, Luke 19, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem, noticed the connection to Nehemiah and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept. The same word for wept is actually the same word for mourning here. It's that he lamented. He saw it and he's like, oh. But perhaps most profoundly, when he discovers that his friend Lazarus has died, it just says this in John 11, verse 35. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This is important because Jesus is not asking us to do something that he hasn't first done. I said last week, you want to know what Jesus is like? He's the perfect embodiment of all of these beatitudes. Jesus mourned. And Jesus too discovered in his mourning, his deep sorrow for the state of things, the comfort of his heavenly father, the God who had sent him in, his first, in the first place. And so that means when you and I are mourning, whether it's the loss of something or someone, or that deeper mourning for the state of things, Jesus can go, I get it. I felt it too. I've had that sucker punch experience of suddenly something or someone being taken from me. I get it, and I'm with you. And so much that I'm with you, I've done something about it. Max Licardo writes this about all, all of this. This is helpful. He says, to mourn for your sins is a natural outflow of poverty of spirit. The second beatitude should follow the first. But that's not always the case, he says. Many deny their weakness. Many know they are wrong, yet pretend they are right. As a result, they never taste the exquisite sorrow of repentance. Of all the paths to joy, this one has to be the strangest. True blessedness, Jesus says, begins with deep sadness. To truly understand in other words, the joy of salvation, the gift of new life in Jesus, we have to first understand why it was such an important thing to achieve in the first place. And the more we go there, the more we allow ourselves to go there, the more we can go, oh, thank you, God. This invitation, this challenge in the second beatitude is to see that until we mourn, not just loss in our life, but the underlying cause of it all, we cannot truly receive comfort of God, but that we are blessed when we do. Michael Green writes this, those who mourn have seen the depth of the world's suffering and of their own sin, and it has broken their heart. When that is true of us, we are wide open for the comfort that God longs to give. I'm a parent of three amazing children and when one of them is in need my instinct and my delight is to comfort them the same is true isn't it when we are in good friendship with one another our instinct is to comfort and care for one another and God is the same he's the loving father the one who so loved the world the one who so was so deeply grieved at the state of things, sent his one and only son so that he could do something about it. And it is his delight and his instinct to comfort you and I. 
And he invites us to step into this upside down, right way round kingdom of God life so that we can experience that deep love that he has for us that fills the vacuum of loss and pain and suffering. I love how it's paraphrased this beatitude in the message version of the Bible. It says this, you're blessed when you feel you've lost what is most dear to you. Only then can you be embraced by the one most dear to you. It's this invitation, again, to self-empty, to humble ourselves, to sit and kneel at his cross and say, I'm sorry, I feel it. I don't like it. I don't want this. I want to work with you. And in that place, God meets us. And none of this should surprise us about God. Jesus has the words of Isaiah, the prophet from the Old Testament, ringing in his ears as he makes these statements in the beginning of his sermon. He is literally the embodiment of all the promises that Isaiah foretold. The famous passage that we need for today is Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Notice this. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Are you brokenhearted? For something or someone, for the state of things, Jesus wants to bind up our hearts. He's to proclaim freedom for the captives, to release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. And notice the promise here, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. Jesus is Isaiah embodied, this prophecy from Isaiah embodied. He has come, and what he says is, when you come to me in mourning and your loss, I can turn all of that into something precious and beautiful in my kingdom. I will put on you a crown of beauty in that place of mourning for your loss. I will put on you a garment of praise instead of that spirit of despair. I will redeem and heal and make whole and repurpose everything you've experienced because I'm making all things new, you included. And then here's the other promise. They, we will be called oaks of righteousness a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. In other words, when we let God do this for us, he shows off through us and people see what he's like. And oaks, oak trees, they stand tall and they stand proud, don't they? And they stand. And there's shelter and comfort there for people. I'm nearly done, don't worry. When we mourn, truly mourn, we can be comforted. And the comfort offered is more, as I hope you've heard, than just loving care and empathy. It's blessing. It's blessing. Blessed are those who mourn. The blessing of all our pain, suffering, loss, and hurt being healed and transformed and redeemed so that our wounds are only just now scars and that we can tell of a God who met us in that place of deepest grief, deepest pain, deepest loss, and said it's going to be okay. How? It's already been done. This is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we, take, we run Alpha courses, because we want people to understand that it's all done. It's free and available. All you have to do is come and taste and see. Jesus, who invites us to mourn for the sin of the world, is the same Jesus who died for the sin of the world. 
And so we read in 2 Corinthians 5, how you ask, in Christ, God put the wrong on him who never did anything wrong so we could be put right with God. Not because God's angry and decided, oh my goodness, these people, I've got to do something with them, but because God weeps and God is moved towards us in love and grace and mercy and comfort and has taken decisive action because he wants us back and he wants us whole and holy and full of joy. And so he pays for us the price of sin, death itself. He dies on a cross. He extinguishes the curse of sin and death. And in rising to new life, he lifts all creation with him. And with that, the possibility that you and I can be made new to that all of our pain and loss can be repurposed, that we will know freedom from that pain and grief, that we can actually experience joy and freedom. And that means he can bless us with all of God's goodness and love. And that we, just like the psalmist, can sing with joy. Psalm 30. You turn my wailing into dancing. You remove my sackcloth and clothe me with joy. That my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord my God, I will praise you forever. Let's take a moment to be still. And to think and to ponder to reflect. invitation this morning, as it is every morning from God, is to come to him in humility. First, by bringing our feelings, our experiences of loss to him and saying, would you comfort me? If you're here this morning and you are mourning, grieving the loss of someone or of something important to you, the loss of health or relationships, the future. Maybe not the loss completely, but the loss of what they once were. God wants you to know his love for you. You don't need to deny or kind of put on a brave face or somehow just kind of cope on your own. You're not meant to experience this. This is not how it was meant to be. And unless we bring our pain and our suffering and our deep grief to God, we cannot be fully free. Because only his perfect love can heal us. The second invitation is to say, God, I can see that the world is not as it was meant to be. And I, I feel deeply, I want to feel deeply. I want to experience godly sorrow. I don't want to pretend that it's not true. I don't want to ignore the reality I see before me and experience within me. I want to be someone who's free enough 
to humble myself before you, acknowledge my need of you and my, and my part in all of this. And for you to do something in me, that means I turn that godly sorrow into repentance. And that repentance would lead me to action, to pray for the world, to serve it, to extend hope. Some of you will be feeling it right now. You're like, oh. Maybe some of you aren't, and that's okay. But if you're not, just say, God, I I want it. If this is true, God, I want to get to that place where I weep when I look over Worcester. Where I feel deep in my bones this recognition that this is not okay. In a moment, I'm going to invite you to stand if you're able, and we're going to pray a prayer of confession together. And then we're going to have a moment where we can wait on the Holy Spirit, the great comforter. And we're going to invite you, if you're here this morning and you are mourning loss, and you're mourning the sin of the world, either or both of those, and you would like to come and stand before God and have someone lay hands on you and pray for you to give you something of the experience of God's comfort just to come out to the front and we're all in this together right and we'll be singing a song at the same time so that's just where we're going to go in the next few moments just a heads up for you would you stand if you're able and these words will come up on the screen and I'll lead us through them let's say this together Most merciful God, we confess to you before the whole company of heaven and one another that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and in what we have failed to do. Forgive us our sins, heal us by your spirit, and raise us to new life in Christ. Amen. If you're comfortable, maybe just put your hands out before you as a posture of openness to God's healing power, God's grace, God's ministry. I find it helpful to close my eyes because I get so distracted.